Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. Joining us around the table here in New York City, I'm pleased to say, is Gabriela Santos, J.P. Morgan Asset Management Global Market Strategist. Good morning to you, Gabriela. Good morning. So, Gabby, why are we always looking for a narrative to explain any given day's price action? Yesterday, for me, just felt like we were down because we were down. Yes, it seems hard to ascribe a very clean narrative uh, for over the past few weeks. I think, you know, about two weeks ago at this point, there was a narrative. Um, There was a very sharp move higher in 10-year yields in the U.S., about 20 basis points in just five days. So that was a clear narrative. The market had to digest that very fast move in rates. But since then, I think it's largely been a function of unwinding uh, in some systematic strategies, the idea that bonds sold off at the same time that the stock market sold off, right? So that correlation became positive, uh, caused some uh, funds to have to, to have to unwind positions. So it feels like it's more of a technical story over the past few days rather than a China or Italy kind of story. Well, the best one I heard was blaming Saudi Arabia. Um, so I checked the crude price and the crude price was down. I mean, I'm struggling to make sense of that one too, Gabby. No, we. I, I don't think we have seen markets actually price in um, a negative outcome uh, from some of the um, Saudi Arabia headlines recently. Um, and exactly because when we look at Brent prices, they're actually below $80. We were close to $85 just yep. a few weeks ago. Um, so I find it hard to ascribe it to that. I, I agree with you. So what do you tell clients at the moment? Do you tell them the fundamentals are okay? Mm-hmm. This will be a technical washout. Things will stabilize in the coming weeks. What's the message? Yes. So we think back two weeks ago before this volatility started, earnings were strong in the U.S. They were actually strong around the world. Economic growth was looking solid. And none of that has really changed over the span of two weeks. So when it's something much more technically driven, um, what we try to say is, is stay the course, don't overreact, because, of course, when you try to get back in, the market has already recovered. What are you telling portfolios? People want to do something. They come in to see you. You sit down, high net worth, whatever, institutional, whatever. And there's like growthiness to value. There's other themes as well. What's the theme that will work 12 months out? So we've been having more conversations about being late cycle in the U.S. economy. Um, we are not uh, saying that there's a recession in the immediate horizon. The but Houston we are... Astros are late cycle. Right? <laughs> yeah. But we are acknowledging that it's the 10th year of the expansion. Three minutes, 55 well, seconds ex- ex- in. Well, three minutes, 55 You're seconds for me. You, you just turned up. I mean, should we talk about it? Do you just want to get it out of the way? We... My people stopped me to talk about David Price on the way in. Well, you owe David Price an apology. I do. I You've mean, given David it. Price such a hard time over the last week. 10-year deal? I think, I, you Is know, we should do one of those dumb... one game? You give him a 10-year deal? <laughs> it's like those dumb <laughs> soccer deals in England, you know, bury the franchise. So we say congratulations to the people of Boston. We should, well, as they oh, had, worldwide. Red as they, Sox as nation Red Sox, is worldwide. Red Sox nation worldwide. I um, would point congratulations. out there are more games uh, ahead. Well, they're oh, at the World you. Series. They're, they're at the big dance. I just want to congratulate them for making it. Okay, when they win the big dance. You guys have no idea that, you know... You have no, the first time they won, it was like Flat Earth Society. It's true, you know 60 State Street, Gabrielle. I'm sure you visited clients in Boston. I was looking down on a window. Is the parade turned left? Were you in a bar? 
No, I was in the office. Look, I'm shocked. You were actually at work. No, but we broke our drinks that day. (laughs) So anyways, they're doing the first Red Sox parade, and I felt John Tucker like Flat Earth Society. I physically couldn't believe that the Red Sox had actually won. That's how deformed my childhood was. It was very, Gabriel's like, why am I here? (laughs) I was thinking back, I was in Philadelphia uh, when the Phillies won. Uh, yeah. That was quite a quite a celebration at yeah. the time. Yeah, but, uh, <laughs> nobody had any experience doing it. Well. Are we going to celebrate equities next year? I mean, at, for, for, for it's a, the, the Lehman Low, it's been a single-digit world, and every year you're wrong, I'm wrong, John's wrong, John's wrong. Is it going to finally be a single-digit world? It might be, at the risk of being wrong again. Um, our expectation and the 10th year of an expansion going on 11 uh, mm-hmm. for next year, um, thinking that earnings growth in the U.S. is going to be much harder to match by far than this year, right? The year-over-year comparison is very tough at the same time that interest rates will be much higher than they are from here. Um, So it seems to us like a single-digit return year for the U.S. come 2019, which is why we still are focusing on having exposure to other regions, despite how negative sentiment has and performance has gotten this year. So let's talk about what regions they are because China overnight coming out with GDP with a slight downside surprise and a clear deceleration in that economy through 2018. So what kind of regional exposure do you want on the equity side? So I think the trick for this year is actually that the fundamental picture in major regions around the world, and I would include China, emerging markets, Europe, uh, Japan, is actually looking fine, right? It's not as strong as it was last year. That was kind of like a 90 degree kind of weather, and we've slowed back down to maybe a 75 degree. Um, but the overall picture looks fine. Earnings growth actually still delivering in all these major regions. So really, the story for this year has been about sentiment. And that's been reflected in prices. All these markets are about 10% cheaper than they were just nine months ago. And you see that reflected in currency weakness versus the dollar. So I think for next year, as long as you get some positive surprises, which at this point is not yeah. hard to do, um, these are markets that should do uh, fairly okay. What do you see for well. use of cash? I mean, I mean, is there any change in behavior? If corporations look at tax bill as one-off, if, if uh, we saw it with Honeywell this morning, cash flows are phenomenal. What are you observing that they do with their cash? And the answer, I believe, is dividend growth and share buyback, right? Yes. Nothing's uh, changed. When you when you look at the numbers, the number one use uh, that we track has been buybacks. Yep. After that, we've seen some really strong flow for M&A, for example. Um, we've also seen dividends remain pretty steady. And then last on the list actually mm-hmm. comes CapEx. So in terms of the ranking, it's last, but it's still an improvement uh, from the past few years. So there has been some uptick in CapEx, but perhaps not the boom yeah. that may have been suggested just given right. the, the actual increase in cash. Well, thank you so much. I'm glad you mentioned the Phillies. I went back and looked. That was when Cole Hamels was <laughs> launched to fame and glory. Gabby, well, thank you. Thank you so much. Gabriela Santos, JP Morgan Asset Management, yeah. was that Global Market Strategist. Talk? It's, it's very that fortunate either. that Bob Hormatz actually joins us in the studio it is. here well in New timed, York. well-timed given the international affairs. Thank you for the introduction. Kissinger yeah. Associates, Vice Chair. He's good at those, Bob. Bradley he's, Cooper's he's really in the movie. It's coming out here. So. Are we going to get a movie Brad from, Cooper, from that yeah. book? The Price of Liberty. I, yeah. Okay. All right. Tom Keane, thank you. Um, Bob, great to see you this morning. Great to be with you. Let's talk about the debt in this country. Um, it's a problem brewing. Yes, it is. The problem brewing and neither party seems to be focused very much on it. Um, There doesn't seem to be any fiscal uh, constraints on 
budget discussions or on budgets or on tax policy. And for the moment, that actually gives a big boost to the economy. Over the medium term and the longer term, it just increases debt that someone else or us um, are going to have to pay off and service. I was listening to Mitch McConnell speaking to Bloomberg's Kevin Cirilli earlier this week, and he was asked about the deficit. That was a really intense interview. I thought it was really interesting that he brought up entitlements, didn't reference the tax cut at all. He talked about entitlements, and we needed to do something about this. And what became clear to me, Bob, is that we very quickly begin to politicize the budget deficit. Can we get away from politicizing the deficit and focus on the economics of it? Well, there are those who try their, their institutions around, like the Peterson Institute and others, that do a lot of work on this uh, question. And Pete Peterson focused a lot on it during his lifetime. And in the book, I talk a lot about this. And the difficulty in the process today is that the one area where there seems to have been compromise, and everyone said so great that there was, was in, in spending and uh, adding more money to various government programs, defense programs, social programs, various others. But there's very little conversation on either party, and certainly not in the midterm election campaign, about the impact uh, on future generations of these very high uh, deficits, which are now going to, over a period of time, interest payments will be higher than defense costs. It's going to be a big, big big deal. It's going to be a big, big deal, especially as rates rise. But I just wonder to what degree it will be a big big deal. And the reason I ask this is that America is in a position of privilege, relatively speaking, to the rest of the world. It can be a situation where it's our debt, our deficit, your problem, uh, because it's going to get financed. That's the view of some people, that I issue treasuries, they will be bought by the foreign buyer, they just won't buy something else. What's your view on that? Well, I think for the last several decades, that's really been the case, that if we run big current account deficits and we run big budget deficits, which we're doing, um, foreigners will buy our will buy our debt. The only problem is that at some point the the carrying costs become so high that even if they're willing to buy our debt, they may not be willing to buy at the same low interest rates as they have over the last several years, and they may not come into all the auctions with the great enthusiasm. Right. And it may over a period of time mean that we'll just um, put more of our money into debt payments than other domestic programs. Ambassador Hormats, is this Riyadh? The same Riyadh you visited is Under Secretary of State. No, it's a it's a very different uh, Riyadh, and that the the Saudis traditionally have been very cautious about their diplomacy and about their international role. Um, this Riyadh is much more um, pro. Uh, it's younger engagement, for starters. Much younger. It's a generational, massive generational. It's shift. younger. There's a lot of focus on a stronger, more active. Um, uh, global role for Saudi Arabia in in the Gulf area in particular, and it's focused a lot more well, on economic diversification. You know, my knowledge of this, some total, this is Alec Guinness playing somebody in the movie Lawrence of Arabia. I can't remember the details, but the answers were a little bit away from Faisal and three or four generations along. What do you identify as the values of this generational shift in the royal family? Well, the interesting thing is, it's try. You have to figure out what they're planning to do and what they're what they're. Do we know? Does the president are. know? Well, I don't know that. He, I don't know that he knows. There are a lot of interesting things that have been going on, that have been on the positive side in terms of uh, diversification away from oil, which they've had to do because they know oil at some point 
um, is going to be substituted for by alternatives. And they're trying to get new technology in. There's more opportunities for larger numbers of people. So there's, there, there are a number of positives that, that have been emerging, along with all the problems that we've seen yeah. also. Well, I mean, the problems that we've seen also, do you have a prescription or a best practice for the United States given the uproar over Mr. Khashoggi's disappearance, murder, death? Well, the U.S. has put very high stakes on our relationship with Saudi Arabia, and I think it's important, and, and I think we're moving in this direction, of, of making sure that what is done um, and comes yeah. out of this uh, investigation that's going on is credible, that the process and the outcome are both credible. That's, I think, the important thing um, for the Saudis and for, and for <clears throat> us, because the U.S. clearly wants to continue to play a good relationship, an active relationship oh. with the Saudis, but they need to do the kind of things that enable American politicians to do that with political support in this country, and a lot of that political support is now being jeopardized, as we've seen. 10, 20 years ago, the statement, we are dependent on Saudi hydrocarbons, was somewhat an accurate statement. Mm -hmm. Is that statement still true? No, we're not really very dependent on Saudi hydrocarbons, but the rest of the world, a lot of other countries are, and and there are global markets in hydrocarbons, so what happens in Saudi affects the price of oil here. But what we are more and more Mm -hmm. actively engaged with the Saudis on is Middle Eastern diplomacy, building up coalitions against uh, um, terrorism, working with them, hopefully, and, um, and we've been working with them to deal with uh, Iranian influence in the region. So they're playing a bigger geopolitical role than they have been in the past. It, it just seems that the foreign policy of this administration, Bob, hinges on an alliance with Israel and with Saudi Arabia. And if that alliance with Saudi Arabia breaks down, I assume the whole foreign policy of the region breaks down for this That's administration. That's correct. That's correct. I mean, if the, if the objective of this administration was to try to contain... Iran, one can debate whether that's a feasible objective or the right one, but if you're going to do that, then Saudi is the real linchpin of that effort. And containing Iran is also part of making Israel feel more secure, particularly containing Iran in uh, the southern part of Syria. That's the part of this administration's goal. Which, Bob, begs the question, if the Saudi Arabians don't have the leverage in the oil market like they used to, they certainly still do in the region. They do have a lot of leverage in the region. They do have a lot of influence in the region, and the U.S. has tried to work with them. That's what make this, makes this more complicated. It's not just about oil anymore. It's about geopolitics, and it's about a very key element of American geopolitics in that area. Ambassador, thank you so much. Robert Hormitz with us today with Kissinger Associates. Is there a book coming out? You know, not for, for the, the next moment, recession? Not for the moment, but I probably have to work on one. Let's get work on that. Thank Robert Hormitz, thank you. Thank you. Uh, so much for joining us. Uh, this morning, Jim Grant joins us uh, right now. Jim Jim Grant from uh, Grant's Interest uh, Rate Observer. Uh, Jim, good morning. Good morning, Tom. Wonderful to have you here. You have predicted for years that at some point rates will move up, but they're not moving up right now in a Jim Grant way, are they? What's distinctive about the rate rise we've seen? Oh, I would say uh, that the compression of um, so-called risk yields over Treasury yields is unusual. I would say that the level of rates still is highly unusual. You know, um, 
worldwide, Tom, there's still, I think last time we looked, about $6 trillion worth of yeah. sovereign and other securities trading for less than zero uh, on a nominal yield, which is unprecedented, I think, in 3,000 years of interest rate history. So despite the um, uh, move up, now the move has been, I guess, two years and some months, began in July of 2016. Yeah. Uh, the, I, you know, the, the tempo of the move actually um, – now that I think of it, is rather more brisk than the upheave in yields that began the previous two bond bear markets. Those two began in 1900 and 1946. So these moves in rates tend to be very long-term over the course of decades or generations, and the right. move up this time has been rather brisk. Okay, and what's so great about this, folks, and, and within the grant interest rate observer note, and I always get emails, please send us a note. No, we protect the copyright of all of our guests. Jim, it's widely read, and one of the major things you talk about is this word reverting. And it's, it's the idea that we're reverting to something. What are we reverting to? Well, in interest rates, uh, in stocks, there is something called reversion to the mean, and that is the tendency of uh, returns to, uh, uh, to uh, uh, rally around some long-term average, returns on equity, for example, returns on, on uh, equity capital uh, or profit margins. In interest rates, there's no such observed tendency. Um, you know, rates now, since about uh, 1870 or thereabouts, um, long Term bond yields have returned on average something like a 466, and we are well below that now. And you might expect that because we are so much below it that we would move up to it, and we may indeed move up, but not because there's any gravitational pull. Well, this is Jim Grant, Grant's Interest Rate Observer, and there's like 47 things, John, we can go to. What do you want to talk uh, we about? We can talk about so many things. Um, Jim, yeah. I want to talk about term premia. Incredibly depressed, and some people would calculate it as somewhat negative over the last few years as well. Do we get a return of term premia, and what's the catalyst of it? Well, I think inflation would be the principal catalyst. We're talking about the tendency of, of longer-dated securities to fetch more in yield and shorter-dated ones you're getting ought to get paid more for taking a greater risk on uh, the tendency of our currencies to depreciate. Um, uh, so I, I would I would expect that if there is a return to normalcy in rates and if there's a return to normalcy in premium, that longer-term yields will rise in relation to shorter ones. That is the book. The inflation is the missing ingredient in this, though. The backup in yields that we had a couple of weeks ago, largely a real rate-driven move, Jim. Are you expecting to see something more in the coming months, quarters, year? Yes. Um, I, you know, I, I, I think that, uh, that the, uh, the monetary sins of the West, to use a phrase that the old French economist Jacques Rueff coined, the monetary sin of the West will finally be revealed in uh, inflation, we have certainly seen a levitation of asset values, otherwise known as Wall Street as a bull market, and one might call that in a kind of a dog in the manger way in inflation. Uh, we have not seen inflation in the checkout counter. Yeah. But I think that's eventually coming. Okay, I, I want to parse this apart. What's great about Jim Grant is he's like he's like that great lead singer like Bradley Cooper in A Star Is Born, John Farrell. The band is always better than him. So Jim Grant will have a conference, and he'll be the dumbest guy there. He has guys like Jason Trennett there, and he got Ackman to darken the door. And, and Jim Grant, you had Craig Moffat show up, and you and Craig skewer AT&T on their debt buildup. 
Is that symptomatic of other debt out there now? Oh, yes. Um, AT&T has about $170 billion or so of coupon debt, meaning tradable bond um, kind of debt out there, and about $250 billion all told, including uh, post-retirement uh, uh, benefits, pensions, stuff, and, and uh, leases and the like. Uh, it is by far the biggest uh, non-governmental, non-financial um, corporate borrower in the world, and it uh, holds that title uh, while also uh, generating negative growth in revenues and uh, and uh, the sloppy measure of cash flow we call EBITDA. So that's that's AT and T, and it is it is indeed symptomatic of uh, a, of a of a persistent move up in corporate leverage over these past 10 years. And in many ways, Jim, they've been incentivized to put an extra turn of leverage on um, because the bond market hasn't really punished them for oh, yes. it. And well, I'm just the bond wonder- market as well, yeah. Bond and, and, is a- and I'm wondering, Jim, when we see the pain and who's carrying it? Well, we have uh, uh, several nominees. Um, one, I think, uh, and this is, uh, alas, has become rather a consensus view, but we think that there is... Uh, trouble storing up in the so-called leveraged loan market. A leveraged loan is like a botanical garden. It seems like every garden is botanical, and every loan connotes leverage or debt. A leveraged loan is a tradable bank loan, yeah. which is extended to a speculative-grade business. Uh, there are something like a, a trillion and a quarter dollar, $1.25 trillion or so of these things outstanding. And the story is that over the course of this cycle, the uh, the fine print, the covenants that protect investors in times of stress have been eviscerated or erased. So the uh, the recovery rates on these things will be much lower in the next recession, and the overall return will be lower than it has been in times past. And the reason that the covenants have been slashed is because the demand for that space has been so huge, Jim. I don't know if you missed it. I imagine you didn't, but the leveraged loan market is now bigger than the high-yield market oh, yes, in the United yeah. States of America. Jim, that's a big change. It is a big change. Um, uh, you know, the, the, the banks um, are in competition for deposits and also for assets. It's a very different world at the stage of the markets. Yeah, Jim. One final question, and you know, rip up the script here a little bit. I know you helped Washington construct the Naval Act of 1794, where they yes. identified two gunners' mates had to be on every ship. You were an actual gunners' mate in the United States Navy. What is it like to be out on a deck in difficult seas and <laughs> you're, you're the guy out there? I mean, you know what I'm talking about because I knew one from World War II. Well, I, let me put you... it this way, Tom. Uh, I, I will answer this question, and I will put it this way. I would say I was aboard the USS Hornet 1965-67. We were at one point off the coast of North Vietnam and South Vietnam. And I will say one thing. I will say that I would have been in greater peril had I been driving as a teenager as I was then, on the Long Island Expressway. Okay, that puts it in perspective. Jim Grant, thank you so much. The U.S. Navy keeping our sailors safe, including James Grant. From the Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio, John Farrow and Tom Keenan. Now, particularly for those of you that own, are angry you don't own, or thinking of owning Apple stock, Jim Suva over at Citigroup wrote a jewel this week with Asla Merchant on Apple. Five reasons to buy Apple stock. Jim Suva, I've been dying to find a some of the parts analysis of Apple. What's it worth, some of the parts? Well, 
Well, thanks, Tom, and good morning to both you and Jonathan. And the way we look at it is simply this stock has had a very big pullback. And with that, we think investors are concerned about the trade wars, the tariffs, and we line everything up as far as how those could potentially impact Apple. And we know many people don't realize this. Apple was excluded from the trade war tariffs. Now, the, the trick is going to be, is does China retaliate and have to push back more and more about, say, don't buy U.S. goods? At this point, it doesn't appear to be the case. We're watching that. But when we look at Apple, we believe that the iPhone, which we went out and did our independent checks for that, we have found that it's selling pretty well. And importantly, the consumers, and here's the trick, and you know about beating expectations, are actually buying the higher memory configurations of the phone because they love their pictures, they love their videos, and they're taking lots of them. And with that, we're seeing that people are buying more and more of the higher memory configurations. And Apple makes big margins on that. We can talk about that in a little bit. To break it down and to directly answer your question of what we think Apple is worth, Mm -hmm. we think it's worth about $265 within the next 12 months. Okay, 12 months, but out five years. Can you do a terminal value analysis of Apple or can you not do that? Um, you know, a person could, because it's a consumer electronics, and these tend to be pretty fickle items. They're going to fail. Yeah, we, <laughs> we go back and we look. I used to cover uh, other companies, Palm, Motorola, BlackBerry, and, you know, these kind of have a little bit of a great. So he's scarred. John Farrell, Jim Suva's scarred. Yeah, I've been doing this for 20 years. And we've seen a lot of these consumer devices have to hit and hit well. So yeah. we model Apple forward three years, and as long as estimates keep going higher, those target prices keep going higher. And don't forget, the company's buying back a lot of stock. And to quantify that, they're buying back $100 billion, which is about 10% of the company. Jim, I just want to talk about the multiple, and then we can talk about the earnings and the margins and the average selling price of that phone, which you sound really bullish about. Um, we're trading about 18 times forward earnings. Most people would say that's quite fair. What would you say? Um, I would agree. I wish I could tell you it's a super cheap, deep value stock. It isn't anymore. When we spoke, you know, 6, 12, 18 months ago, many times, um, Tom, on this show and before Jonathan joined you, we talked about how it was it's a, a dark deep day. discount to the market. That now has time. closed as Apple has done that. So now we view the yeah. valuation <clears throat> multiple as actually pretty fair. I, I mean, John, you know, Jim Sue was just finessing this so well. Jim didn't want to come on for like two years because you showed up. You know, and I have like, come on, Pharaoh's here. You gotta come on, Jim. <laughs> Pharaoh's here. You Jim, gotta come on. Can we talk about Tom's trip to Brooklyn at the end of the month? What's he going to be looking for on October thirtieth, and why Brooklyn? Why not Cupertino, California? Yeah, let me let me set it up for the listeners who may not be aware of that. Yesterday, Apple sent out an invitation for a press, media, and financial analyst meeting in Brooklyn, New York on October 30th, so so the end of this month. Now, the way to think about this is obviously they don't do this because they have extra time or extra budget to spend and nothing better to do on their hands. They're going to say something. Now, they just had in September their launch of their new iPhones, so we know it's not iPhones. When we think about the venue of where this at is at a music center. Potentially, it could be something around music, but we do note it's been well over a year and a half since they've launched anything on the new um, PCs and iPads. So that kind of sets the stage about what it could be or what it couldn't be. But importantly, it's right before earnings, and earnings are on November 1st. So we think that they wanted to get this information and news announcement out before that they had their earnings, you know, two days later. So what are you looking for? 
Uh, you know, we, we would expect actually before the holiday seasons, we, we would be, it'd be nice to see something new about the PCs, but also they've been talking a lot about content, um, content of both, uh, you know, they have Apple Music, but also content about video and Apple TV, which has been, you know, they've been taking baby steps into the TV sector. Jim Silver, we got to leave it there, but we'd love to get you on uh, uh, again, not only to talk Apple, but to talk technology. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.